Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for February 2nd, 2017. The Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor, Your Huddled Masses, uh, Screw It edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Wait, John, that's a really long title. How's that going to fit? It'll fit. They'll make okay. it fit. They're going to make it fit. John Dickerson. This is the new authoritarian, David. He doesn't care for the norms or rules of normal procedure. He's just, they're going to make it fit. Well Maybe said. your huddled masses, uh, screw it. That would fit. Are you? Are you? Are we going to re-edit? Editor. That's, I'm, that's, I'm, I'm not going to take any help. advice from Mama Smurf there in uh, New Haven. <laughs> being my Emily's all in this weird blue outfit. You look so are you, Smurfy. Are you in an attic or a basement? You're in an attic because of she's the in Smurf yeah. Village. Yeah, that's uh, and it's cold up there. Right? Yeah, because I come and I turn my space heater on, but I forget to turn it on early. So I'm wearing my Smurf hat, which I find very I, – I like it. It's very cozy. Anyway, that, of course, is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. And in the studio with me is John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Hi, guys. Hello. On this week's Scabfest, the extraordinary response to President Trump's extraordinary order barring refugees from coming to the United States, then a new nominee for the Supreme Court – combines Scalia's foxiness and John Roberts's charm. Then government resistance to Trump, the bureaucrats versus the bully. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And for Slate Plus, what piece of culture helps us make sense of the hellscape we're living in? If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Reminder, my friends, that on March 1st, we are doing our first live GabFest in Los Angeles Get yourself ready. Get over to Slate.com for tickets. They are going fast. We're going to be at the theater at the Ace Hotel on March 1st. I was just in L.A. this week. What a paradise. I cannot wait, wait to go back for a show and to see you at the show. What were you doing in L.A.? Some Atlas Obscure business, just doing some meetings. It was really fun. I love L.A. Was it warm? It was beautiful and warm. And yet people were just as anxious and concerned and depressed as they are on the East Coast, even though <laughs> well, they are in the sun. What a surprise. <laughs> even though they're in sunshine. But L.A. and New York would be similar. Um. All right. That was John Dickerson. But John Dickerson is now going to assure us that Iowa would feel different. Minnesota would feel different. The Great Plains of Kansas and Nebraska would feel different. He's not rising to your bait. I know. He's he just doesn't. letting it roll <laughs> right know, off I him. Know, I know. All right. Hours feel like days. Days feel like weeks. Weeks feel like years. These six days since Donald Trump's unprecedented and mismanaged refugee ban have felt as chaotic and unsettled as any time I can remember. In two weeks in office, Trump has created. That's not true. You were alive after 9-11. I would say this feels more unsettling than 9-11. I really would. Okay. I would not because obviously the 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 harm done to the country was was multiples greater after 9/11, but there was a sense of national unity and kind of cohesion, cohesion which doesn't exist okay. right now. All right. Um but a fair point from John Dickerson as always. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> not a good as point. Always? Just a just a fair a fair point as always from John Dickerson. <laughs> In any case, after two weeks of the Trump presidency, the nation feels as polarized and tense as uh, it has been in a long time, maybe since 9-11, for example. (laughs) And there is an active resistance on the left, the likes of which we have not seen in my lifetime. Trump's order barred entry to the United States from people from seven majority Muslim countries, including green card holders, at least initially it barred green card holders who knows it's been enforced so weirdly that does it actually bar green card holders who knows 
it barred Syrian refugees indefinitely and it barred all refugees temporarily. It was uh, has been carried out with a kind of callousness and shoddiness that is either intentionally wicked or just incompetent. Uh, the sick or and both. the lame detained, U.S. translators turned away, innocents abused, agencies and Congress not apparently consulted in any meaningful way before the order was put into place. So, Emily, why do you think the Trump administration did this so flashily and aggressively and incompetently? Did they do it? Were they incompetent because they were incompetent or were they incompetent and and they did this so, so thuggishly because that was the purpose. The purpose is to cause harm and to ca- cause a backlash. I don't think there's one monolithic, like, in sync brain of the Trump administration. I think there are factions and that there was, I'm sure there were people who were quite horrified by how callous and, as you said, mismanaged this was because it was so unnecessary. And then I think there are other people, um, and it seemed like Stephen Bannon and Stephen Miller were the main face of this, for whom the polarizing result was part of the charm, maybe part of the whole idea. And so, you know, a kind of sense of let the left protest as much as it wants. Our supporters see this as the president keeping the country safe and if it riles up, you know, the DC bureaucracy and makes Congress, including Republicans in Congress, nervous, so much the better because we're here to disrupt and burn things down, shake things up, whatever your metaphor is. So I think there were these sort of competing ideas going on and that also early in an administration before you really have very many of your cabinet officials or your people in place in the federal government, you can do kind of more radical actions because a small number of people are making the decisions and you don't have the pushback you would have had. So, you know, General Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, was reportedly furious about this, but it's easier to sideline just General Mattis and take him by surprise. And I suppose we should also mention the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Kelly also seemed to have been unconsulted wasn't super on board, at least for all of it. But that's easier than like you have a lot of people and you're all working together, at least you're supposed to be. So if you make everybody mad, you're you're up against kind of a greater mass. And there was obviously no Secretary of State, although now we have Rex Tillerson confirmed. What did you guys think? Yeah, John, I, I really would love to hear your take on that same question. Well, I think I think Emily's sketched it out pretty well. I like that uh, notion of the of the no one in sync brain. And I think, well, I, I'll just tell you what my reporting has suggested. So I think what you've said is exactly right. I don't know if the chaos that was created was a, uh, a you know, a feature or a bug. I think that it was a inconsequential result of, based on the architects of this, both Bannon and, and the president. Now, I think where it did become- It was inconsequential to them. To them, yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yes, thank you very much. I think, to, though, that there is some reporting that suggests that um, there was uh, some conflict and, I mean, uh, two, two ways in which this could be, at least that it, it's come to me that way, that, that there's tension that might actually affect what the president and his advisor, uh, Steve Bannon, want, which is that it, that it clashed against what he's trying to do with ISIS in Iraq. So- you know, they don't care about con- Congress's whining, uh, the niceties of, of the system in part because as it's been described to me and also as you can sort of observe, the the process is not just something they don't know about and aren't interested in. They actively think it's a malignant force. And so right. if people argue on behalf of the process, they think that's all the more reason to break it and do it as, as Emily's already said. So where does it run it? So you have the pr- two problems. One, the Senator McCain on Face the Nation was talking about how this affects U.S. operations in Mosul. In other words, active operations that are going on now. The the travel ban, there was some um, issue, not only not with just translators who had helped uh, the U.S. trying to come back from Iraq to the United States, but there was some hint that I was getting that there was actually, this had a, an actual effect on things that were happening right now in the, in the U.S., assistance of operations against ISIS in Iraq. So that's a real-time clash with another objective of the Trump administration. And then the second thing is, as it has been explained to me this week, is that when you put Iran and Iraq on the same um, uh, list, and you, 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 obviously the diplomatic implications here were bad, and there was no, the way was not prepared. So 
countries like Jordan, other countries in which uh, with Muslim populations where some diplomacy might have have been laid out ahead of time to say, we're going to do this, but it's not a Muslim ban because we didn't name, you know, any of the top, I can't remember what it is, five, seven, ten Muslim majority nations. Um, in terms this is, of population. In terms mean, of population. Terms of these are these are the nations, three of which have been, you know, uh, deemed state sponsors of terrorism. The other four are countries the Obama administration was watching. This is based on security and threats from people in those countries. It's a pause. This is not targeting religion. If you had prepared the way, that might have been helpful diplomatically. That was not done in, in the Iraq, Iran situation, the way it was explained to me is, you know, Iran is trying to uh, assert its influence in Iraq. And so now it has an argument. Senator McCain said this is propaganda for ISIS, but it's also propaganda for Iran to say to those in Iraq, hey, you know, the United States is against you. Let us be your friend. And that's obviously something that they don't want or shouldn't want at the White House. Quickly, on the Hill, on the House Republican side, there was the feeling that it was this was managed incompetently from top to bottom. They don't know what they don't know, is what one Republican up there told me. Um, and the fear is not just that this was handled poorly, because they a lot of them believe in the policy itself, but that this is the template for future chaos with the, with the White House. And what happens when they have to try and do something? complicated where they require a kind of um, symbiotic relationship with the Hill, that that'll be a disaster. And then on the Senate side, it was basically the response I was getting is, you know, a couple of phone calls could have smoothed this out for you. And the fact that you didn't even bother to make the phone calls suggests, again, the kind of blindness that that worries them. Well, and, and just to go to your, your you channeling or talking about the, the skepticism that Trump and and Bannon may have for the process. The process is things like bilateral agreements with the nation of Australia for the United States to accept a certain number of, of refugees based on a kind of UN agreement that was hammered out. And for then the United States in a, in a phone call between President Trump and Prime Minister Turnbull, GabFest listener, hello. Hello, and we're sorry our president was so rude to yeah. you yesterday, apparently. Yeah, that to, to, to sort of, you know, threaten to renege on that agreement, to, to totally undermine what our own allies expect us to be doing. You know, you can say, oh, we're disrupting the process, but really you're kind of undermining an order which generally benefits the world and gen generally benefits the policies that we want to pursue. That's It, it may give them satisfaction that they're, that they're burning up Washington, but it also – causes actual damage in the world. Emily, is it your sense that this order of the president is illegal or merely wicked? Well, I, I do feel really deeply that it was wicked. The way it was carried out was so incredibly cruel to hundreds or thousands of people around the world who, I mean, the, we, we, I just have to pause on this, like the green card holders, the people with special visas, these were people who had been extremely or intensely vetted and were coming here for reasons to do often with the school the stories about you know people in school broke my heart it just felt like we were alienating exactly the kinds of people around the world who we should actually be welcoming here and unraveling our relationships with other countries and also our image around the world in this way that was deeply unsettling to me is it illegal? I think that it's an open question I mean there are classes of people the green card holders the special immigrant, visa people who are going to have an easier time making an argument that this is illegal. The broader ban, there's sort of a clash potentially between two different laws. So there's an, a statute from the 1950s that gives the president enormous leeway and authority uh, over, and discretion over who comes into the country. And also generally, and we've talked about this before, in terms of Obama's executive order about immigration, in general, the power of the presidency is at its zenith when you talk about immigration, because it's about national security and the borders. And this is a power that we have almost entirely ascribed to the executive branch. Although the fact that Obama wasn't able to, that the courts prevented him, I and mean, this that wasn't settled in the Supreme Court in the end, but the fact that Obama faced 
problems legally and challenges when he tried to not deport a group of people, basically, suggests that this power isn't complete. And then the other thing is this 1965 statute that Lyndon Johnson signed, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of nationality and religion and other things in terms of issuing visas. So then you have this kind of, you know, more technical legal question about whether issuing visas is a very narrow element of what the federal government does, and that law only applies very technically to the actual issuance of visas, or whether if you bar entry to people, then you're depriving them of their visas. And so this notion of anti-discrimination should come into play. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, the at first, there was this question of whether the Department of Justice had even gotten a look at this order. Then the Office of Legal Counsel, which is the part of the Justice Department that reviews all executive orders for legality, issued this interesting statement where they said, well, we approved this for form and said that it was legal on its face. And then, of course, Sally Yates, the acting attorney general, came out and said she thought the order was potentially unlawful and she was going to refuse to defend it in court. And what she was saying, if you read between the lines of her statement, was that, okay, it might be legal on its face, but when you take into account Trump's own tweets about giving preference to Christians and the statements he's made in the past about a Muslim ban, it starts to look like discrimination on the basis of religion. And that is that is a big question about whether the Supreme Court would find that to be illegal in the context of immigration, given all of the ins and outs I was just describing. But it it certainly is deeply disturbing in terms of how we usually think about religious freedom in this country. And I think it's certainly possible. And personally, I would hope that courts would take a very close look at that. The um the point about what the president had said is crucial in terms of defining this because the one of the White House rebuttals has been this is not a Muslim ban because of the other countries that were not on the list. And that's a perfectly good point, except for when the president was asked, will you prioritize Christians? He said yes. And I'm just – I'm reminded how – much the, the George W. Bush administration had to wrestle with the fallout from his um, and how much he was criticized for in the wake of 9-11 when taking action in Afghanistan. He said this great crusade or right. he, I can't remember yes, he was great, that word but he definitely used the word crusade. Yeah. And it was an issue for him over both domestically, but also overseas because uh, it caused a lot of fallout as, as countries thought, aha, this is you're basically creating a religious war. So if that one use of that word caused him that kind of heartache, this presumably would cause even more. I mean, one of the points to make is independent of whether it's illegal or even whether it's wicked is whether it is smart. And there, and to, to, to your point, John, about, well, this is a for, to, to prevent terrorism – None of the – this ban would not have prevented any of the domestic terrorist attacks that we've had in this country. There, it would have done nothing. As a piece of actual policy, it's also pretty shitty in addition to being wrong. So so that's a – I think there's a way in which the, the, the Trump administration's case is very much built around people's security and a sense of fear and imminent potential for attack. But actually judging by history, this is not a very good preventative – Measure just on that, those lines. One of the ways they have defended the measure is by saying, "Well, this could, this would prevent another San Bernardino shooting," and that, of course, isn't the case since the husband in the San Bernardino shooting was a citizen and the wife was a was on a visa, but from none of the named countries. Exactly. But then I also feel like this is where there have been these rumors skittering around that the list of countries could get bigger because actually, if you were going to prevent San Bernardino in this literal minded perhaps counterproductive way, you would ban people that, from Pakistan, it, it's not right? Just you just add... It's not the, just a rumor. Ryan Spreebus said it on Face the Nation Sunday. He said, well, we should oh, add other countries. On maybe, Face maybe the Nation should maybe John we should, <laughs> Maybe we should add other countries. I'll give you, definitely consider I, I will give you. I will give you $75 if they add any country. They might add Pakistan. They would never add Saudi Arabia. Yeah. They're never going to add Saudi Arabia. Yeah. They're not going to add Jordan. Yeah. They're not going to add Turkey. <laughs> You know, Egypt? also kind of, maybe that idea. One other point that I think is important as a part of this: when you think about General Mattis at the, the Secretary of Defense, it's not. I, you know, I don't know how I, the level of upset is hard for me to gauge, but it's worth remembering that a lot of what he did in Central Command when he was head of Central Command was do the careful, painstaking 
diplomatic work with a lot of Muslim nations. He didn't speak out during the campaign at all. But he did once when Donald Trump suggested the Muslim ban. And he said it was a bad idea. Let's just make that clear, right? Didn't Mattis yes. speak out um, against it? Yeah. And he said in the in the region and with our allies and in this volatile place, they wonder when hearing about a Muslim ban if we've gone insane and they think we have to have our head examined. So it's not that it's just that he wasn't consulted. It's that it puts the Secretary of Defense who did all this careful work and whose job as Secretary of Defense will be improved by all the diplomacy he did in the region. It now puts him in a pickle um, with all of his existing relationships, with, with his like one of his core strengths. He's not just a guy who knows how to blow up stuff. He's a guy who spent a lot of time doing careful diplomacy so he wouldn't have to blow anything up. One of my fears about exactly that point is that in the uh, imagine again that steve bannon and steve miller are the people who are for breaking the chairs in this scenario that there's a way in which mattis and kelly and the republicans in congress who have spoken up but not actually done anything to hinder the administration in this action that all these people and and maybe all of official washington i guess you could get broader that that there's a a kind of stain that is spreading and that if you implicate your cabinet and your elected officials in this kind of action that you're tainting them morally too and making them seem suspect around the world and that that also was a feature not a bug perhaps to some people in the White House that you want to damage people's moral credibility and give them less standing so that it's harder for them to speak out the next time and people don't see them as truth tellers or people that should be listened to around the world. I really worry about that, that the idea was kind of to degrade people who could have been seen as opposing this ban and and really didn't do very much. One final thought. The rebuttal in a lot of these debates back and forth from the supporters of the presidents have been, well, you just don't want to keep America safe. Much of this criticism is coming from people who agree with the underlying idea. It's that they are tallying up the damage done by the way it was handled and the way it's arguably still being handled. So uh, this is an important distinction because in conversations I've had, um, any discussion of diplomacy or uh, consultation always is responded to with, well, this is this had to be done to keep America safe, which is an answer to an entirely different argument. Look, I don't want to know what the Republicans in Congress are going to do. I think it's terrible. But I would sure the hell be happier as a citizen if we had a very strong legislature that was acting legislatively to express its will um, rather than having an autocratic president who is deciding it and totally shaping policy. I think as a nation, we would be much safer and happier. Even if these laws are not very good, even if these laws are as bad as what Trump is doing with executive orders, I just think as a, as a, as a nation, we would be more stable if that was coming out of a legislature rather than out of a kind of unreliable autocratic president. Though harder um, for the courts to stop if it was right, really no harder for, harder for the courts to stop. Yeah, and but that then would maybe be fine. would be better law. Right, it would be better. It would, it would express the well, will. Well, if it were a better law, would, David went so far as like if it was just as bad. That's where I part company with you on this. I don't think there's anything particularly unconstitutional about what Trump has done. It just feels like it's it's wicked counterproductive and possibly illegal, but not necessarily unconstitutional. Well, the Constitution prevents religious discrimination. Yeah, but I so, think, you know, there's, you know, a, he, there's a lot of – it's not exactly religious discrimination. It's, it's yes, okay. I know. It's um, tricky. I and if it were done but, legislatively, yeah. you'd feel like, okay, well, at least the, you know, the, the House and Senate, which represent the, the will of the people more than – perhaps the president does have acted in this way and therefore that's that's fine it just it just gives well, us another debate it wouldn't yeah. this wouldn't have happened right. not this in so, this so, totally so it, reckless manner yes. the other big news about this was the response to it which was quite enormous in a lot of big cities and in airports i was uh delighted to when i got to los angeles and came into lax my i couldn't get a get out of lax because it was ringed by protest which was exciting does that mobilization of urban people and the urban elites a emily do you think it will last and b how does it matter how does that intensity matter i'm not sure whether it will last but i think it's 
real and it's overwhelming the expectations of organizers. So I was talking to some immigration rights folks who put out the call for the protest at Kennedy that started, I think, on Saturday night. They had no idea whether anyone was going to show up. And sent, and there were thousands of people there. And, you know, it's important to say, too, these protests weren't just in New York and L.A. There were 3,000 people in the airport in Birmingham, Alabama. So our definition of urban needs to expand, at least from beyond the coast. And it will have an effect if it looks to members of Congress like they are facing the kind of intense wave of opposition that they faced from Tea Party activists. I mean, that sort of intensity element of the vote is important to people who are supposed to be representing local districts. And so even if some of the Trump people are happy to write this off and mock it or use it to galvanize their supporters, for members of Congress, if you have thousands of people, you know, showing up at your office or jamming your phone lines, that has an impact. And we saw an effect of that this week when Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins came out against uh, Betsy DeVos, the education secretary pick. And they said, especially Murkowski said, that she'd heard from a lot of constituents. So I I think... Of course, there's another explanation for that. Which is what? (laughs) That they get a lot of money from the teachers unions and that they want to claim it's the people rising up instead of their donors. I'm not suggesting that... I'm I'm just saying that's that's the alternative view of why they switched their votes. Well, maybe it's both. Let's just have like a nice charitable view of Lisa Murkowski and how she thinks about her uh, her votes. I've, I, She's afraid maybe of all those right. grizzly bears getting shot. All those grizzly bears that are coming <laughs> to visit right. schools in Alaska and they're suddenly going to get shot by people who are armed in schools. Well, John, do you think that protests like this are simply theater and have no political impact? Oh, no, no. I think they have. I'm all for protest. Uh, and and I think it's as, um, I was gonna say it's as great as the, the Tea Party protests. Some Democrats worry that their base is now incredibly energized and they're they're very excited about that. But they're worried now that they will face the same problem Republicans faced. You know, sometimes there's a strategic reason to pick your battles and that the call for absolutely full, constant, total and complete resistance to Trump on every measure is not strategically wise. Right. Secondly, purity tests are a problem. Thank you. God, so much better put. Right. So it <laughs> no, gets no. you into the land of purity tests, which is a problem. Secondly, it, it causes misbehavior because the protesters are seeing their lawmakers not do what they want. They start to act out and start to do things that might go over the line and that that then weakens their their position. And I think they're also trying to figure out who speaks for them. Because you have a multiplicity of voices, and some of them speak better than others. I'm going to take the last word on this, which is that one of the things that I find so demoralizing about all of this as a citizen is that basically people want to live a bourgeois life, people as much as possible. They don't actually want to spend their time full of anxiety and stress and thinking a lot about politics. They would rather think about Beyonce's baby and about their kids' softball Babies, twins. How could you miss that important fact? And this uncertainty and this doubt and this chaos is a tax on people. And your energy, it makes you unable to focus on things that you really would like to focus on in your life. And now you could, I think the case, you know, the, the Bannon case would be, well, people need to be disrupted. There's a whole system that needs to be shaken up. And all these people who are suffering, things need to be heightened so that they, the, these improvements can be made. But basically, for the vast majority of people who in this country, I think this stress and uncertainty and anxiety are, they're damaging. This episode of The GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister, or friend, an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift 
by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. In any other time, the nomination of a Supreme Court justice to fill a seat would be the story of the month, especially a seat which had been left open because of a extremely dubious maneuver by Republicans over the last year. The nomination of Neil Gorsuch, a federal appeals court judge in Colorado, however, has been, I think, more of a blip. I mean, it's been a big story, but given how much else is happening, it's been it's been a smaller story than I would have expected. Yes. In part, that's because I think Gorsuch is is not a personality that lends itself to to a huge amount of drama. He appears to be a very competent lawyer, very well liked. He's a bit of a the the bastard child of Antonin Scalia, whom he would replace, and John Roberts. He shares Scalia's extremely conservative jurisprudence, uh, his pro life and pro religious bent, and his wit. But he seems to have Roberts' knack for being well-liked and friendly and polite and congenial and good to work with. He is evidently qualified to be a Supreme Court justice. There's, I don't think there's any ambiguity about that. If he were had been nominated by a President Romney, he would be a shoe-in. But, 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 Emily, but, what's the but there? <laughs> well, in a normal world, Gorsuch would be someone who would get through the Senate, like, I don't know, 90-10, maybe 80-20. But in a normal world, this seat wouldn't be open because President Obama's choice, Merrick Garland, would be sitting in it. And Neil Gorsuch would get the next nod from the next pick that a Republican president would get. I think that Gorsuch was a very smart pick. I would say this is the smartest thing that Trump has done since he got into office because it fulfilled a promise to his a, a socially conservative base that cares deeply about Supreme Court picks and also the kind of conservative elite legal class, the Federalist Society folks love Neil Gorsuch. He is really smart. He's such a good writer. I mean, I really have to say this guy is a good writer. And he just presents, he looks the part of a judge, which I'm sure was also an aspect of his appeal to Trump, since Trump cares about that. If you're trying to evaluate, you know, who he's going to be on the court, I mean, Lee Epstein and a couple other scholars who've been classifying judges, appeals court judges, and then trying to predict their performance on the court... They see um, Gorsuch as to the right of Scalia, actually, when you take the body of his opinions. And having read a bunch of them now, I can see in my kind of scattershot anecdotal way why. And I can talk about that if you want. But he looks like someone who um, could do a much better job of building coalitions than Scalia, who was famously wounding and acerbic in a lot of his opinions in a way that seemed just perfectly designed to alienate uh, centrists, uh, for lack of a better word, like Kennedy and O'Connor. So that could make him quite powerful. And then, of course, there's this whole sort of sub-theme, which is that Gorsuch clerked for Kennedy, so they like each other. And Gorsuch could be a way of reassuring Kennedy, that it, who is 80 years old, that if he were to retire in the next couple of years, that Trump can be trusted to pick a kind of responsible successor, even though obviously there's no guarantee that the next time around, the next justice would look like this one. If you were comparing the the court when Antonin Scalia was alive to the court as it will now be shaped, is it a more conservative court, equally conservative court up in the air? I realize you just sort of answered some of that, but where are things? I mean, it's obviously more conservative than it is now with a 4-4 tie. So at least equally. I think the one question mark that I have that's going to be important to a lot of people is actually Roe versus Wade and abortion. So we knew absolutely that Justice Scalia regarded Roe as absurd and unconstitutional and would have taken it back in a heartbeat. The evidence that Gorsuch agrees with that position to me looks kind of thin. So first of all, I'm just going to say this. I mean, this guy's an Episcopalian. He's not Catholic. He's not a Christian fundamentalist. It seems unlikely to me that like deep in his bones is some sense of like religious condemnation of abortion. Now I could be wrong about that. I, but I'm just going to put that out there because I think it matters. And I am sure he has not said, opened his mouth about abortion in 25 years. So we're not going to find anything on the record or I'll be really surprised if we do, because he's essentially been campaigning in a quiet way as one does for this seat 
seat for his entire professional life. The big evidence that he is up for overturning Roe is that he wrote a book about physician-assisted suicide in which he came out basically against physician-assisted suicide. And there's a line in this book where he says, quote, the intentional taking of human life by private persons is always wrong. So maybe that means that abortion is terrible and we should immediately uh, reverse Roe. Or maybe it's just like a really clever signal that just shows enough sympathy with abortion opponents that you're reassuring them without actually tipping your hand. I don't know. We'll hmm. see. I also am not sure, one more thing, that he is as hostile to affirmative action and race-conscious government programs. I mean, Justice Scalia was truly hostile. I don't see much in Gorsuch's record and talking to people who know him. I'm not hearing the same kind of antipathy. I'm not suggesting he's like going to be super excited about things like affirmative action or, you know, the Voting Rights Act and uh, broad interpretations to protect minority voters. But he might be a little more Kennedy-esque than Scalia-esque on that front. It's just like a little hard to tell. So the Garland nomination, which was stopped in violation of the general tradition and norms of the Senate, I think will be recorded as one of the greatest tactical political victories in recent history it, by they, republicans obviously. by republicans they yes. they were are getting this they it kind of guaranteed trump's presidency because so many mm-hmm. people voted for trump who didn't really like him but you know it was important to get that court nomination to get that court seat and and to, to hold that conservative majority on the court and it was a total victory and they're going to get this they're going to get this nomination they're going to get this justice so i think that's a just credit Mitch McConnell uh, for like a truly sinister but very, very brilliant campaign. Yeah, so, he totally uh, called that right. And you can argue that they played dirty, but they it doesn't really matter. He uh, completely called the politics right. Uh, John, yeah, talk for a minute about what weapons the Democrats can use to try to stop Gorsuch. It is, is it essentially the filibuster I, and how does it – will that get blasted out? So I'm I'm still fi- trying to figure this out. I think yes, it's essentially the filibuster. They need Republicans would need eight votes from Democrats to to overcome the sixty vote threshold. Um, if they filibuster, then McConnell could um, invoke the so called nuclear option. I need to kind of think through, which essentially call call for a change of the rules in the Senate, which is not. Super easy to do, even though Harry Reid did it for all lower court appointments and for cabinet posts. The challenge is that um, Mitch McConnell has repeatedly said in his career two important things. One, we don't want to change things because someday we'll be in the minority too. And in his book, he writes extensively about how the Senate gives power to the minority and how that's an important part of the Senate. It's built into the foundation of the government. Now, the filibuster wasn't a part of the founder's design. It didn't wasn't first used till 1837. But the idea that the House was directly connected to the people and would swerve with its passions, the idea that a president could get more control than the founders had tried to constrain him from having meant that the Senate had this cooling saucer role that it was supposed to play. Uh, and so McConnell has talked about that a lot. And so and he does, you know, believe in 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 this stuff. So it would be, um, it would be anyway. So I, I so am scoffing, sneering. That's fine. Fear of being a hypocrite that's is fine. not constrained. That's fine. Anybody in this anyway. So that's country and that's the, on the, the right um, for a that, generation. That's where that stands. Now, what a what do Democrats do if they go ahead and do this? Do they pull out old copies of McConnell's book and say, "But wait a minute," and <laughs> right. point to it? Um, that doesn't. That'll um, work and really I think. Well. The reason I think that that's a hard thing to do is it's a um, or could be a potentially hard thing to do is it becomes a procedural debate in public as opposed to it seems to me that the easier debate in public for Democrats would be if they found something in Gorsuch's record that was objectionable and then would be able to say we don't want this judge because he is unfit is a is a more linear argument than we don't want this judge because it's payback for this other thing. And there are also a lot of obviously Democrats who want this to be just blockage because it's a blockage of Trump. Forget all those other stupid arguments. Resist is the is the main right. goal. I mean, I totally understand the desire to no longer be bullied, to fight play by the same rules that Republicans have been playing by, to resist, to oppose at every turn. I 
just again speaking as a citizen in the long game the senate and house and the three branches of government have to be respected institutions they have to function normally they have to act in normal ways such that it's it, every fight is not a, a war that that things are substantive and that there are rules that people live by and if democrats suddenly say we're not going to play by these rules either we're going to oppose and obstruct in every way we can it, it is emotionally satisfying it may be a short-term political gain i just like it just as a citizen it just makes me just sad because i don't think in the long term i don't think we can function with a senate and a house that are run in this completely partisan way and yet i mean i'm i like all of that and i'm drawn to it and then but then i also and i've totally have not made up my mind about this, but if you have one side that's always willing to like flip the board and take the marbles and go home and you have this other side that is like calmly trying to continue to play the game, the the side that is, you know, flipping the table is going to win every time. I'm not sure what you get for de-escalating, right? Yeah. It's like you want this to be like the nonviolent resistance, the turn the other cheek that in the end... Yeah wins the day. Yeah, but no, we're not seeing any evidence that it's actually effective right, in terms a, of winning elections. Right. It's a prisoner's dilemma case where yeah. you know the other person is always going to take the selfish advantageous route. And yet if you both you know that if both of you acted cooperatively, everything would be better in the long term. But you and and therefore Democrats, I think, have this tendency to want to act cooperatively also because they believe in government. I mean, I think their belief in how government works and how government should function is totally different from how Republicans, Not particularly totally conservative Republicans. But at pre- this moment, it it's, seems, it's rather different. Yeah. Um, but Republicans don't have that same incentive. And I don't know. But Emily, aren't you? Do you really think this is the hill to die on? This is the Battle of Helm's Deep. This is the this is the place <laughs> to to have this fight right now. I don't think that Neil Gorchus is an is, is the right hill to die on because he's someone who, in other circumstances, should be easily confirmed. And also, let me just say one more thing about that, which is I want the Supreme Court to have strong, opinionated part of people on it. I don't want it to be filled with like bland centrist judges who spend their whole time until they get there hiding the ball. And so that's part of why I say that. Having said that, I. <laughs> what's the point of hanging on to the fill? I mean, I feel like I have no question that the, the second the Republicans see it as in their interest to end the filibuster, they will end it yep. in a united way and they will have good rhetoric about it and it will be over. And so I'm not exactly sure what the Democrats are saving their powder for. If the base wants this fight, are they better off politically waging the fight, even though Neil Gorsuch wouldn't be the right target under any other circumstance. I don't, I have no idea, but I feel like those are the questions that they, um, I, I also think like Schumer's been dealt a bad hand. This is, yeah. this isn't, I'm sure he would pr- much prefer a nominee who it's easy to make a very strong case against easier than with Gorsuch. There are a lot of auditions going on for 2020 in the democratic party. This is an opportunity yeah. of, Yep. To solve the problem that you that we've been discussing here for Democrats, this is an opportunity for any of those people who want to run in 2020, not to win necessarily, uh, but to rush forward and and both harness this energy without becoming, uh, well, I should say harness this energy, give voice to it in a way that's both compelling to the grassroots, but that isn't, um, that also suggests a broader vision. So that isn't kind of the Ted Cruz model, which is super compelling to the grassroots, but disliked by all your colleagues. But then I don't know who the, who the other uh, um, argument right. is. But anyway, so you should, ima- you can imagine this being super tryout time for a number of Democratic senators. Last uh, procedural question for you, John. If the filibuster gets blown up for Supreme Court nominations does it also then get blown up for things like obamacare for for all the other places where it exists when you where you need not necessarily no i think not but i what i don't have an answer for is what procedurally keeps that from being so well the way reed did it he just ended it for lower court judicial nominations and cap right so like clearly there's some way you can do that i don't know what it is either but i think he just chose that was his own 
choice to Let stop it. it there. I don't I don't think there it was a norm he was maintaining for Supreme Court nominees, but I think he could have gone all the way to the Supreme Court nominees. But there uh-huh. must be some way in the rules you could like end it for some for this and not that. I yeah, yeah, but I think David's saying if you're going to break it for Supreme Court, why not break it for everything? What? Why keep right. the well, filibuster at all? That. Yeah, Certainly that's they could I, do that. I think they Absolutely. could do that. I think because the Senate operates on unanimous consent, that it would be, and this is a way in which maintaining the norm does cause issues because if because Democrats would just never give unanimous consent, right. the Senate would absolutely stop. Period. Well, that, that's a, that's a thing that some people have proposed as the democratic strategy should be denied unanimous consent for everything and make stretch everything out although isn't unanimous consent also a thing which is basically a senate rule and that the senate can but even can to get ch- rid of it well but it can get rid of it only by unanimous consent are you sure huh. yeah oh well then that one will stay in place so <laughs> now the reason it's difficult for democrats to do that is yeah, you know, there is some stuff that the Senate does and that they want to get done for themselves. So grinding the Senate to a complete halt in which nothing can ever happen ever does have it isn't cost free. It sounds like uh, 2009 to 2017. If we're thinking of the American constitutional system and comparing it to a parliamentary model, I mean, what is however you feel about this administration, aren't there advantages to having the party in power just be in power and do whatever it wants to do? And then if people don't like it, they can vote the bastards out. The oh, my time. God. Emily Bazelon channeling David Plotz. Yes. Parliamentary <laughs> systems are great. Parliamentary systems, however, require a very responsive democracy where elections can be called frequently. Yes, where I was thinking about that. You get to vote for party. Yeah. I mean, there are all sorts of other things that you would need. But right. we basically have a parliamentary democracy with none of the uh, escape valves. Huh. Yeah, that's I've said that since. Yeah, no, I know. Well, we all. I but is that would... true? That's not re- quite true. Tell, or yeah, tell I'm, me why I'm, that's true. Look, I'm making glib comments. <laughs> you can't call elections. You well, right. Wait. I get that part of it. I and understand. Have, it's the. And we also don't have minority have parties, it. like the little minority parties, which you can, which can be thrown Coalition, balance, balance, yeah. balance, balance. Yeah. Right. And and then yeah. somebody should say and gerrymandering, and then off the conversation goes. <laughs> Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As the son of a federal employee and a, the resident of a city filled with federal employees, I'm very fascinated by the discussion that's going on in Washington and probably in federal offices elsewhere about the role of bureaucrats in an administration that they may have opposition to. Uh, In particular, can government, the question of can government employees or in what way can government employees resist Trump administration policies? Two episodes, maybe three episodes have brought this to light. First of all, on Monday, president fired acting attorney general sally yates and obama holdover holding this position because jeff sessions had not yet been confirmed when she refused to defend the refugee ban in court saying she was not sure it was legal and she refused to have a part in it then a thousand state department employees used the state department's dissent channel an official channel to object to the order asserting that it was going to damage america's standing in the world third came news that the administration had during the transition had floated the idea of firing all the independent inspectors general in all the departments of the federal government. The inspectors general are these non essentially nonpartisan appointees who monitor the bureaucracy and make sure things corruption and misbehavior are not taking place in the government. Uh, the The administration seems to have backed off of that and, and retreated from it. But it was an idea that was floated. Sean Spicer's response to the uh, the State Department employees who who dissented or filed this dissent w- was that they quote should either get with the program or they can go. <laughs> so is that right, John? Sure. I mean, it's right in the sense that in the system, the boss you know makes the rules, and you either go with them or you uh, you know you can be fired. There's a huge 
huge cost at the, for that for in a couple of different ways. One, everybody's looking over their shoulder. Everybody's becoming freedom of thought and creativity and entrepreneurial activity is squashed. And that makes everybody nervous and jittery and also lowers your talent pool to only yes men. It's also I suddenly now uh, in my mind, I'm channeling James Mattis, but Mattis, when I wrote about him and spent time with him when um, even before he got to Central Command, used to go out around and give um, talks to three stars and and lower to leaders in the military. And his argument was always and we put this in the in the profile of him was was he said, go find Mavericks and put them in your ranks. If you don't have a maverick in your rank, go find one and get them there because what they'll do, although they're a pain, they will deliver to you the news you don't recognize or know and they will deliver creative ideas and they will keep you from getting yourself killed because he was arguing that like, you know, you will be blinded by the natural cocooning function of leadership and you need someone to keep breaking that. So every good president knows to have people around him who challenge him. And so shutting that down not only creates a total shriveling of good decision making, but it also leaves you open to massive blind spots. Uh, the dissent channel was created to um, break out of those blind spots, to break out of that groupthink, to break out of the idea that the best and the brightest could see all things coming. If bubbles are the great sin of our modern age, supposedly, according to some people, this is like the Bubble Protection Act of uh, 2017. That's a very good point. Emily, does it matter, do you think, that federal government bureaucrats and civil servants are so overwhelmingly democratic? People on the left worry that the military is so overwhelmingly conservative in its, in its officer ranks, especially white military. Should, should there be that same concern that the federal bureaucracy is so lefty? Huh. I think that there is a real tradition in the federal bureaucracy of doing your job and setting aside partisan considerations. I think if this administration is going to continue to, you know, issue very reckless, cruel orders, then it's not really going to be a matter of partisanship, whether you're not on board for all of that. And I guess what bothered me about what Sean Spicer said is, these people are using this dissent channel. Like that's a tradition in the State Department. They weren't saying, you know, we refuse to carry this order out. They were saying, for all the reasons we talked about earlier, we're really concerned about the implications of this for national security, for our relationships with countries and people abroad. And a, a mature, confident boss says, I'm going to take that into account. So I don't, I feel like we're beyond partisanship here. You didn't answer my question. Does it matter, however? Does it matter that that there are liberals? In what sense do you mean, does it matter? I mean, that you have a Republican administration come in and they sense that, shoot, all the people who are going to work for us don't trust us, disagree with our views, and you know, won't won't carry them out honorably. But that I think seems... the honorably part of that and even the won't carry them out part of that, we haven't seen evidence of. The problem at the Department of Homeland Security seems to be there were questions of whether Customs and Border Patrol was fulfilling court orders by letting lawyers talk to some of the people who are being detained. I haven't really seen evidence so far that there's any kind of dishonorable not obeying of government orders going on. And Sally Yates, you know, who's the person who did say, I won't defend this, she got fired right away, and I'm sure she expected to be fired. And there was nothing wrong with Trump firing her, although saying that she had betrayed the Department of Justice seemed super peevish and immature and unhelpful to me. I think she should have quit. I didn't think she should have. So here's one thing about the whole Sally should have resigned just to add a fact to that. One thing she might have been thinking about is that if you look at the Federal Vacancies Act, if she had resigned, the person who was next in line was a career employee or the U.S. attorney for for Washington, D.C. And so then you have that person having to decide whether to also resign. And now you're talking about people who have real jobs that they might not want to leave at that moment. And so she might have been thinking of those particular people and the potential harm to them. And she also knew that Trump could fire her right away. So I feel like I know that this distinction is getting much touted about her resigning as opposed to just defying an order in a way that got her fired. But I feel like there were good reasons for what she did. 
John, I'm just going to use this opportunity to quote from one of my favorite documents. In 1944, the OSS, which is the predecessor of the CIA, put out this document about how to sabotage an organization. And yeah, this is your. Yeah, I think it, we both have come to this yeah. separately and, and find it great. And so it's a, it's a way basically to snarl bureaucracy, and it's just this list, which I guess we'll repost it. So, for example, insist on doing everything through channels. Never permit shortcuts to be taken in order to expedite decisions. Make speeches. Talk as frequently as possible and at great length. When possible, refer all matters to committees for further study and consideration. Attempt to make the committees as large as possible. Haggle over precise wordings of communications, minutes, resolutions. Advocate caution. In making work assignments, always sign out the unimportant jobs first. See that the important jobs are assigned to inefficient workers. So it, can I just interrupt? Yeah. To the extent that liberals are all sending around their, <laughs> their favorite books about anti-fascism from the 40s and 50s, this is what – sort of Steve Bannon would send around to his uh, social media chain saying, like, if you want to know how this is part of a programmatic effort to stop what we're trying to do, look at it's been foretold in the 40s right. by people. Because when you everything you've listed there has been a version of a complaint against Donald Trump. Right. One more. To lower morale and production. Be pleasant with inefficient workers. Give them undeserved promotions. Uh, hold conferences when there's more critical work to be done. Anyway, so that's one strategy is basically that it's to it's to sabotage what's being done by being inefficient. It's uh, it's uh, you know it's like a work to rule in in a bureaucracy. That's one strategy. Another strategy is to say, well, really, uh, anybody who's coming to work with us, we need to acculturate them. That when you come and work in an organization, let's make them welcome and let's teach them how we do things, and they will become captive, that will will Stockholm Syndrome them because they'll come to recognize the good work we do and they will become an advocate for it and and that will moderate their position. What what do you think the, the wise strategy what, is? Yeah, so what is the wise strategy? What is the moral strategy? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think you, I'm, I'm going through the possibilities of both in in my head. It seems like the latter... If you believe in your ideas and what you do, then and then you've got to still hold out hope that once you become in, once you come in contact with people and can show them the good in what you do and the reason these um, procedures are in place and not just foolish, that you should go that route. And secondarily, you should go that route because and have I said this on the show already? And talking to some Republican lawmakers who have strong disagreements with President Trump on everything from trade to to foreign policy to entitlements. They are sort of going back and reexamining their thinking, not for the purposes of abandoning it, but for the purposes of shoring up their arguments because they know they're going to now be in a big fight over why we why as we as Republicans believe in free trade. Emily, last word to you. Should the should the Washington bureaucrats acculturate the Trump folks and hope that they then mollify and moderate them or should they sabotage? I just feel like it's impossible to answer these abstract questions. Like they should acculturate whenever You're like a Supreme Court nominee. You're like well, I won't I, just, I won't like, answer your hypothetical give plots. Give me a particular con I'm much more interested in like should Sally Yates have done what she did than like some theoretical I mean, if you think that some terrible thing is about to happen, then you should sabotage it. You should be civilly, civilly disobedient or you should resign. But if you think you could do more good than harm by trying to make sure that like, you know, yes, I need my climate change research to continue. And no, I don't want to hide the data when it's done. If you can convince your boss of that, then you should do that. I think it is so that there's certain kinds of people and Donald Trump, I think, is probably one of them who are totally uninterested in empathy. They don't notice or care or respond to other people's feelings. If you're the boss, you're like, fuck it, I'm the boss. I'm going to you know, tell people what to do. But most people, even most people who are bosses, want a congenial working environment. They want people that respect them. They want to have good relationships. And therefore, they're likely to respond to people who work congenially with them or cooperative. And once you have built up a level of trust, I think that allows a reciprocity in a, and and people want to succeed at their jobs. They want even when people take over organizations, they generally don't take over an organization because they want to sabotage the organization. Right. That's right. generally not right. what people well, do, except for potentially the new head of the EPA. But but there, yes, potentially the new head of the EPA. Yeah, this administration is a huge test for what is otherwise historically has been uh, goodwill and attempt to carry out the work of the organizations. But I think your point. Uh, 
to me, one point is that it goes against the grain for large numbers of leaders to come in and essentially try to destroy the places they've been asked to lead. And maybe we'll see that happen. It's possible. But it, it, it requires a certain, um, you know, kind of 1984-like disposition and discipline that yeah. I don't think most people are really, like, that excited about living. It's it's hard day-to-day. Although, you have to be incredibly, like, steely to pull it off. I guess we'll watch it play out in perhaps two different ways. If Betsy DeVos gets through her nomination, and that's obviously up in the air, versus Pruitt at EPA, DeVos has a different theory of the case and wants to use the department to pursue her theory of the case. And that will cause some portions of the department to die, but it will elevate other portions. And it's based on a theory of the world. I think Pruitt, and and I'm a little out of my depth here, but I think seems more anxious to undo and take apart. So would face a challenge that you sketched more than DeVos. But he also is animated by a theory too. It's just his his animating theory seems different than the one that controls what the EPA does. Good point. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're sitting on your porch in the evening and the bobcat that has escaped from the National Zoo walks by your house, as happened to my dear wife, Hannah Rosen. She saw it? Yeah. Really? It came by her house. Oh, my God. Did That's she call so Animal Control? No, she, she tweeted. She tweeted. The, the citizenry is imperiled by her lack of first responder. Well, I think Did her, view, like, her view is I want that. She wanted Ollie service? to be free. She wanted the. She thought so. Like is this she, a bobcat that wants that to be free? So is she? Someone. Is she leading midnight raids on the on the zoo to free the animals? I can't. I can't comment on that. <laughs> Naked mole rats, be free! Follow your bliss. So when you're having your cocktail on the porch and the bobcat comes by, John Dickerson, what will you be chattering about? I will be chattering about a delightful uh, article from uh, 1957 in the Guardian. The headline of the article is "Vending Machines Revolutionize the Way We Have a Cuppa," meaning a cup of tea. And the article is mostly about how vending machines, which used to just be for cigarettes and candy, um, now can make tea. And you could, out of one nozzle, you can get just straight old tea, and the other nozzle, you can get tea with sugar. But it, what I loved about this article, in addition to its fun, antiquated kind of low Loping language and um, brief sense of uh, of time travel that you get from reading it is this paragraph. It's it's one we can all recognize from articles today, but that sort of spools out the exciting future of vending machines. And so it goes, this summer, it should be possible for a family on a day trip to, say, Margate or Brighton, to live almost entirely out of slot machines. There will be food and drink machines to take care of all their meals. If father wants to take a snap, there will be machines selling rolls of film. If his daughter forgets her bathing costume, she will be able to drop money in the slot for one. And mother will find a selection of picture postcard views to send the neighbors, also in slot machines. Should the older members of the family want to finish up the day at a dance, the women will be able to renew their nylons from one machine and get a spray of perfume from another. For their parents, there will be automatically dispensed hair cream to smarm down sea frizzled hair. <laughs> what a paradise. Yes. Paradise on earth <laughs> in Margate. Uh, Emily Labaz, what's your chatter? I We're about to talk about cultural um, artifacts that are helping us through this time. And I'm or helping us make sense of this time, I think is how you phrased it. But I'm actually also interested in escaping. And so I've been looking for books that like just take me to a different place and reading a new book by Alan Burdick called Why Time Flies. That's just delightfully discursive at a moment where I feel like I'm reading all these urgent essays about, um, you know, the potential for authoritarianism. It is nice in the evenings to pick out a book in which I can remember my fleeting acquaintance with Aristotle or St. Augustine and think about kind of philosophers and big thinkers over time and how they have dealt with the concept of time. And it also has some lovely, you know, very down to earth parts about Alan's relationships with his kids and thinking about his own life. So anyway, if you're looking for a way to depart from the um, tense moment that we're in, I recommend Why Time Flies by Alan Burdick. My chatter is about Dave Bratt. Dave Bratt is congressman from uh, Virginia. He ran against Eric Cantor and then House uh, Majority Leader and uh, defeated Cantor. And it was an uh, amazing victory. And he, Bratt was going to talk about his con- connection with constituents 
and he criticized Cantor for his detachment from his district. Brat, like many Republican congressmen these days, has gone underground. He has promised his constituents town halls. He gives them no town halls. He ducks meetings. He will go, for example, to Arizona to participate in a public event with some other congressman. He will not do any public events in his own district. Apparently, in 2016, he did not do a single event open to the public. He <laughs> Wow. He was going to do a town hall, and then he was like, oh, we'll make it a Facebook town hall. Demanded questions in advance. And he, and he said, one of the reasons why he said this is, recently, he's not doing this because he said, quote, since Obamacare and these issues have come up, the women are in my grill no matter where I go. <laughs> I love it. So I think this is a strategy that the Re- Republicans in particular don't want to get Tea Party. They don't want to have these town halls and these public events where their constituents are going to be badgering them and battering them. And I and we're going to see what we're going to see in recesses and in home visits is not what we saw back in 2010, which is Democratic and even Republican members of Congress getting shellacked by constituents. I think there's going to be a huge avoidance of constituents by any congressperson who's in a, in, in a district which has any kind of tension in it. And Isn't this going to school a little bit on what Democrats did, though? Because eventually Democrats did stop scheduling town halls because they were getting pounded. I mean, I'm not saying yeah. it's virtuous. I'm just saying uh, he's they've kind of gone. They've learned the lesson of of what the Democrats did yeah. ultimately. Well, they, and, you know, people are turning off their office phones, but it's demoralizing. Trump just canceled a trip to Milwaukee because they were afraid of the protests that they would have outside the Harley Davidson plant. He just didn't want to have protests. It is a shame that we are in a political culture where people only want acclamation and they will not, they can't deal with a public dissent. The public dissent is too embarrassing. It's too threatening. It's really incredible. When you talk about the bubbles you live in, it's a shocking bubble to have the elected representatives refuse to stand in front of those that they represent. I deplore it, Dave Brett. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Bowers, Andy, is the chief content officer for Panoply. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our entire roster of podcasts is at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed at Slate GabFest. And our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to the show. It really helps when you subscribe to the show. We all feel better when you subscribe to the show. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Please also, if you're going to be in L.A. on March 1st, join us at the Ace Hotel, slate.com slash live for tickets. It's going to be a live show. I promise there will have been a lot of news for us to talk about. It will be a fascinating moment. Join us there. We'll talk to you next week. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.